The stories in this book have been told and retold, cherished and revered by literally billions of people over thousands of years. People have devoted their entire lives to studying this book. There are hundreds of thousands of commentaries on it. And many people believe that this book had to have been written by God. The Torah, what's so special about it? Why is it so mesmerizing? And how has it managed to capture the human imagination for millennia? I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Where do these rabbis get off telling us what to do? Okay, let's assume I'm a total believer, and I have complete faith that the Torah is the absolute word of God, every word and letter, and so I believe that all the laws in the Torah are 100% binding, and I commit to following them, no questions asked. I'm a servant of the Lord, and I submit myself before God's command. But still, who says I have to listen to a bunch of old rabbis telling me exactly how to keep these laws? And not only that, these rabbis come up with new laws. You know, there, there are no Hanukkah candles in the Torah. So why do I have to light Hanukkah candles? I mean, they're nice, of course, but have to? Well, the source for all this rabbinic authority is right here in our Parsha, in one little line. The Parsha is called Shoftim, or Judges, and it starts by commanding us to appoint judges and police in every settlement presumably to resolve disputes. But then, a bit further on, there's this extra warning. Don't deviate from what they tell you. Yamin usmol, right or left. And with these very few words, a whole world of rabbinic authority is born. Maimonides cites this verse as he counts following the rulings of the Sanhedrin, the supreme religious court in Jerusalem, as one of the 13 commandments in the Torah. And that includes not only interpretations of the Torah itself, but also any other decrees, ordinances, or customs. Gzerot, takanot, minhagot. Okay, so let's assume I'm willing to accept even that. I follow the Torah, and the Torah tells me in one small phrase to follow the rabbis, so I follow the rabbis too. But now things get really crazy. Because Rashi, commenting on that same verse, says the most astonishing thing. Do not deviate from what they tell you, right or left. Rashi says, Afilu omer lecha al yamin shehu smol, va'al smol shehu yamin. That is, even if they say to you that right is left, and left is right. How much more so when they tell you that right is right, and left is left. Okay, do you get what he's saying? Why does the verse end with right or left, he's asking? And his answer is that these judges don't just have the authority to tell you what the law is. They actually have the authority to overrule reality as you know it. If they say that right is left, that blue is red, that day is night, that's what it is, and you have to accept their ruling, even if it contradicts what you know to be true. So let's call this the 
even if they're wrong theory. And yeah, I'm sorry, that's pr it's pretty disturbing. These rabbis don't seem to be in charge because they're faithful administrators of justice or wise social administrators. They're just in charge. And you listen to them. Listen to them no matter what, and against all evidence to the contrary. Now, maybe the message here is about simply submitting to authority as a virtue in itself. But most of the other commentators find this impossible to believe. In fact, in the Talmud itself, there seems to be a very different interpretation. Right or left, says the Talmud, you might think that if the sages tell you that the right is left and the left is right, you have to obey them. That's why the text states right or left, meaning when they tell you that right is right and left is left. Ah, well, that sounds much easier to swallow. Sure, you have to listen to them, but only if they're right. Otherwise, no way. Now, this sounds more reasonable, but if you think about it for a moment, it's kind of problematic as well. Because what does it even mean to say that judges have authority only when we agree with them? And that's not really authority. And they're resolving a disagreement after all, so someone's going to disagree with them no matter what they say. What's the point of having a judge if the person who loses the case doesn't have to listen to the judge? Hmm. So maybe now we can begin to see why Rashi took the opposite interpretation. So, wait, which is it? Do they have to be correct in their rulings or not? And how do we determine what correct is anyway? Well, the great Spanish com commentator, the Ramban, has an answer, and we'll call this the they're not wrong theory. He first cites Rashi's audacious comments and then writes, the idea here is, afilu even if you think in your heart that they're wrong, and it's as obvious to you as the difference between right and left, do as they command, ki ruach Hashem al for the Spirit of God rests upon the ministers of God's sanctuary. And God will never forsake them God's kindnesses. And they will always be protected from error and stumbling. So, if you're worried that you might have to follow the judges even when they're wrong, don't be. Because according to the Ramban, they never are. Judges are always right. Not because their word trumps the truth, but because they're guided by divine power and they never make mistakes. Well, <laughs> that's sort of comforting, if you can believe it. But gosh, it sure is hard to imagine that rabbis never make mistakes. And I say this as a rabbi. Now, to be fair, the Ramban may just be talking about the rabbis in the time of the great Sanhedrin, whom he believed to have been guided by a special divine providence. But he probably wouldn't say that about the rabbis of his time, or the rabbis of today. But if that's so, where does that leave Jewish law after the period of the Sanhedrin? And what's the status of rabbinic authority since then? And again, why should I follow them if I think they're wrong? Well, one more theory might help with these questions, and it comes from my old favorite, the Kliakar of Prague. And this is the they-can't-be-wrong theory. 
And that doesn't mean they always get the right answer. It means there is no right answer. All right, check this out. The truth is, he says, I don't see any problem here. The explanation is that for anything which is either pure or impure, there are many ways to view it as pure, and there are many ways to view it as impure. And if the Torah called it pure, that's just because there are more ways to see it as pure than impure, and so too for the opposite. And the same is true for something which may be permitted or forbidden, acceptable or unacceptable. And that's why it's appropriate to accept what they say, even when they say that right is left, because there are also ways to think of it as left. In other words, the Kliakar is a bit of a postmodernist. There isn't, from a human vantage point anyway, only one truth. Any one thing can be seen from multiple perspectives, and so there are many true answers. So when a judge or a prophet or a rabbi rules on a matter, even if it seems contrary to your own sense of what's true, remember that yours is not the only truth and that there is inevitably a different way of understanding the case at hand. These rabbis have been vested with authority, yes, but it's not the authority to be right. It's the authority to study the law, to understand it from multiple perspectives, and sift through the various possibilities in order to select the truth which is right for the situation at hand. But doesn't that take us back to where we started? Fine, there are multiple perspectives, multiple truths, but at the end of the day, aren't we troubled by the power that judges have to decide? Isn't that a power that can be easily abused? Yes. Maybe that's why the Torah uses the phrase right or left again, just nine verses later. But this time adds a significant qualification. This time the cautionary is directed towards a king, the most powerful authority figure of all. To check that power, the king must keep a copy of the Torah with him at all times. Why? Lest he becomes arrogant in his rule over his, his kinsmen and deviates from the Torah's command, right or left, yamin usmol. So here's the question of right or left again. But now it's not upon us, but upon the authority figure to be careful. And why are we so worried that he might go off course? Because he can easily become arrogant, power-hungry, megalomaniacal, and dangerous. The authority of any legal system is based on some theory of truth. Is the truth simply whatever the judge says it is? Do we just hope that the judge is always able to find the real truth? Or do we believe that earthly truth is always a matter of perspective, and many possible truths may emerge from the judge's bench? In order to be able to accept the rule of law at all, we'll have to decide what theory of truth we believe the legal system operates on. But authority is also based on trust. A judge doesn't earn this through some abstract standard of truth. We also expect her to adhere to a standard of ethics. And the supreme ethic in judgment, the virtue without which there is no legitimate human authority, is humility.
Best Book Ever was produced by Ben Cooley and edited by Vera Blossom. And our theme song is Pitrouli by Hillel Tigay. You can listen to more of his beautiful music on iTunes and Spotify. And while you're there, why not subscribe to Best Book Ever if you haven't already. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and our work, you can visit us at ecar.org and donate or Venmo us at ecarla. That's I-K-A-R-L-A. Thanks a lot and see you next week. Thank you.